I really believed that I was God. I felt like I was invincible. Part of that is, you know, because of the drugs. <laughs> When I look back, you see how I was just fooling myself. Prodigal returns home. That's our story today on First Person. Welcome. I'm Wayne Shepherd. In a moment, you're going to meet a mother and a son. Both were prodigals. First, the mother came to Christ through her heartbreak, and then her prayers were answered as her son came home to the cross from his wanderings. First Person is here each week at this time to hear the life stories of people who constantly remind us of God's faithfulness and calling. And you can follow us online at firstpersoninterview.com, where there's a calendar of upcoming guests, as well as an archive of past interviews. Again, we're found at firstpersoninterview.com. Christopher Yuan, the son of Chinese immigrants, discovered at an early age that he was attracted to other boys. Years of living as a gay man, drug use, and prison brought him to a place of brokenness. Meanwhile, his mother's life was unraveling until she placed her faith in Christ and began praying for her prodigal son. Christopher and his mother, Angela, are telling their story in the new book, Out of a Far Country, a message of hope to other prodigals, parents of prodigals, and those wanting to minister to the gay community. Together, they joined me in the studio, and I started by talking to Christopher about when it was that he hit rock bottom. Well, you know, not being raised in a Christian home, my parents never told me about God. We didn't own a Bible. Um, but I had this secret that I had um, from a young age, and it was at nine years old that I realized that I was attracted also to the same sex. And I came across some pornography, and that was kind of the beginning of the secret that I kept to myself. I didn't tell my parents, didn't tell any of my friends. I didn't dare tell anyone. I was scared to. You know, imagine having to keep that secret for so long and what that does to a child, being afraid, feeling ashamed. Um, eventually, I acted upon that when I was 16, but then kind of went back in the closet, as some people would say. And it was when I was about 23 that I came out to my friends. I had moved to Louisville, go to dental school, and there I came out to my friends, to my classmates. And after a year of being in dental school in Louisville, I decided, I went home. This is kind of the beginning of our book then, where I am confronted by my mother, and she just found some pornography. Uh, and she asks if I was gay. She had expected that I would um, kind of push back or, or maybe get defensive or, or lie about it. Maybe she was hoping I would lie about it. At that point, I was ready to, to tell my parents, and I just very upfront just told them, yes, I, I am gay. You know, for my mother, it just – it was a crushing blow. She, this had been something that she'd feared for so long. And my parents' marriage was a disaster, um, and as a result of that crisis, um, my mother was going to end her life. Uh, but fortunately, that wasn't the end of the story for my mom, and God brought her to himself because of that. We'll talk more about that. But you stormed out of the house that day that you finally told your mother the truth, right? I did. I, you know, my mom gave me this ultimatum first, and she said, you must choose the family or choose homosexuality. Because to her, it seemed a no-brainer that I would choose the family. We're Chinese. Family is everything. That seemed like a logical thing for her. She would 
bring me to my senses. But unfortunately for me, I thought, you know, I could not choose one way or the other. This is not like a light switch. I could just, you know, turn gay or turn straight. So for me, it was my parents rejecting me and kicking me out of the house. And so that, that's why it's so ironic. Perception is everything. Where for me, I saw it as my mother rejecting me. But when I left, it was I, you know, my mother felt that I was re- rejecting yeah. her. Well, let's get the other side of the story, so to speak, because your mother is sitting right beside you right now. Angela, welcome to our program. Thank you for having us. You've co-written this book and tell the story together of, mm-hmm. of this miraculous story of conversion of Christopher. But that day that you confronted him and he confessed and stormed out of the house, mm-hmm. what was going through your mind? Wow. That was the worst day I could say in my whole life because I did not have uh, the law and I don't know uh, Jesus Christ. And I was devastated. The most of all, I feel so shamed because being a Chinese mother, you know, our face or our name is everything. In the family, it's everything. So we expect our Sons going to grow up, have a good career and good names, but this is all uh, broken. My dream was broken. Christopher, you were in dental school at that time, following in the footsteps of your father, as any good son, Chinese <laughs> son right. would do, right? Yes. To follow your father's footsteps, but that, that wasn't working out very well for you. I went back to Louisville, and um, I you know, was going in and out of relationships. Um, at this point, my, my parents had come to faith as a result of kind of this crisis moment. I you know, thought they kind of had lost their mind, but that, you know, it, it was <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll, we'll get that side of your mom here in a moment. <laughs> but at least they were still together, so I thought, well, that's good for them, huh. not for me. So I was in dental school, and I began experimenting with some drugs, I, with some club drugs ecstasy and um, you know I wasn't very wealthy uh, as a a dental student so I supported my habit by selling drugs well before long I began selling to many many people um, friends, classmates and even a professor in dental school Hmm. Um, and after several years just actually three months before I was to receive my doctorate the administration of the school expelled me Hmm. And the dream died at that point. It did. Mm-hmm. For you and your parents, really. It, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Angela, uh, during this time that uh, Christopher is uh, in Louisville and he's in dental school and you know that he is living the gay lifestyle. And did you know he was doing drugs at that point? No, we did not. We are so, uh, I feel like we are so ignorant because I, we didn't know anybody or uh, doing drug, or we have ever seen drugs. Christopher, you you not only were um, dealing drugs, you were living a high lifestyle, weren't you? You were you were living uh, all across the country, going to parties everywhere. It yes, like. yeah. It's so interesting how we never have to look for sin. We don't have to look for trouble. Often, trouble will find us. Mm. And it drew me in. The high life, the money, the fame, the friends, the attention, the You found glamour. it pretty easy to make money selling drugs? It was so easy to make money. Uh, you know, initially I'd started just making enough to pay for my own habit. Maybe 10 hits of ecstasy would be enough to pay for my own habit. Well, before I knew it, maybe just even within the 
first month, I was selling over 100 hits of ecstasy per weekend. You said you learned uh, good business practices from your folks because <laughs> you were keeping all the receipts and I doing did. it like a legitimate business. I did. And so when you were busted, mm-hmm. the, the cops found all that, right? They did, yeah. So I was in Atlanta after I got kicked out of dental school in Atlanta, lived there for another two over two years and became a supplier to other dealers. And, you know, all this time my parents were praying for me. Uh, eventually the, the answer to prayer came when I got a bang on my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. Good morning. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I won't come back to that part of the story, but Angela, I want to come back to you because I would like for you to tell us a story. Uh, you and your husband have become believers during this crisis time in Christopher's life. Yes. And you paid him a visit in Atlanta and you convinced him at least partially, to come to church at First Baptist and hear Dr. Charles Stanley. Tell that story for us. Yes. We were, uh, tried to share gospel to everybody at that time when we were new Christian. So naturally, we want to share Christ with Christopher. And as uh, parents, we thought the best way to share is uh, take him to the church. So when we visit him in Atlanta, and naturally, we don't see him in the night, but we told him in the afternoon, I said, tomorrow morning, it's a Sunday, <laughs> and could you come to meet us uh, Sunday at 10 o'clock or 9.30, and then we can go to lunch? He said, we see. Yeah, well, I will see. <laughs> no <know>. promises. <laughs> no. <laughs> so next day morning, uh, after we arrived at the church, we keep uh Looking, you know, what is Christopher coming? Or is, if he if he's coming, uh, but we haven't, we do not see him anywhere, and it's almost like towards to the end we saw him walking. He's he's standing all the way in the back. Then about three minutes he disappeared. Okay, I want Christopher to pick up the story. <laughs> what happened during that time at church? Well, you know, to this day, I don't know why I went to church. Everything within me was saying, I, I don't want to go. What, you know, and, um, to First Baptist Atlanta of all places, First right? Baptist of Atlanta, I, I, I wanted to run. And the funny thing was, I had not slept. I came straight from the clubs. Oh, boy. You know, it must have been 10 o'clock in the yeah. morning, and I hadn't slept. I was still in my clothes that, I'd, that I had gone to from the clubs. I was dirty, sweaty, sticky. Um, and I know and you're I, not proud of it, but you actually decided to go to the bathroom. Well, and... yes. And, and, you know, we struggled about whether we should put this in the book or not because I mean, it's a little sacrilegious. But it shows what depth I had gone. Right. Well, like I said, I'd just come home from the clubs uh, or gone to the church from the clubs. Yeah, I hadn't been home yet. Um, And I was bored out of my mind. I was just thinking, what am I doing here? Sat there in the back, didn't see my parents. So I thought, well, I've still got some drugs with me. And so I went into the bathroom at First Baptist Atlanta, Hmm. uh, went into one of the stalls, and um, I took out my pipe. At that time, I was smoking ice, which is uh, very, very addicting, not just snorting it. Um, took up my lighter, and I um, did a big hit of ice right there in the bathroom stall of First Baptist Atlanta. I'm glad you told the story in the book because it does illustrate how you lose all reason, all ability to think clearly, don't you? I did. And, you know, I didn't care anymore what people thought, what I was doing. I, I say how I really believed that I was God. I felt like I was invincible. I felt... Um, I was on top of the world. I mean, part of that is, you know, because of the drugs. And yet, 
when I look back, you see how I was just fooling myself and how depraved I really was. We'll continue our conversation with Christopher Yuan and his mother, Angela, in just a moment on today's edition of First Person. Next week, a young couple give up life in America to move to Africa to serve Christ. We are just dreaming and and even smelling Africa. (laughs) When I actually am in the village and I'm with the people, and when we really get to the people that we're serving, it's like a light bulb goes on. It's where I was meant to be. We'll hear about their dream as we talk with Ben and Melody Palo next week on First Person. Talking with Christopher and Angela Yuan on the program today, Christopher reached a point where drug agents came knocking at his door early one morning. They confiscated all my money, my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. And with that, I was facing 10 years to life. So then... You know, I I was sitting there in jail, um, tried to call all my friends, you know, those friends that said, I'll never leave your side. I'll be there. You know, I got your back. Um, Not one answered my phone call. So as a last resort, I called home and I did not want to make that phone call. I was still imagining my parents as they were before coming to Christ. And I was expecting an earful. But uh, my mother's first words were, are you okay?" And I'm reminded of what Paul says uh, in Romans 2.4, where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Not God's wrath, not God's punishment, but God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I know we're skipping a lot of the story here. It is in your book. But tell me about... uh Coming in contact with the scriptures, that that Bible story. Yes. Well, you know, going back a little bit before I was uh, in, incarcerated, I wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the Bible. And on that visit that my parents came to Atlanta, I kicked them out after the second day. I wanted, you know, nothing to do with them. My dad, before he left, gave me his first Bible. Well, after they left, I took his Bible and threw it in the trash can. Mm. Uh, three days after I was incarcerated, I was walking around the cell block and um, I passed by a garbage can of all things and just, you know, it was heaping with trash. With It was uh, disgusting. And I looked at it and I thought, this represents my life. I was from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad has two doctorates. I was on my way to become a doctor and now I was among common criminals. Trash. So I was about to pass by that garbage can and I looked down into that trash And I found something, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. (laughs) Took that New Testament back to my cell, and for the very first time, I opened up that good book and began to read. I actually read through the entire Gospel of Mark. I was going to ask you if you knew where you opened it to, (laughs) if you know where you opened it. It it was the Gospel of Mark. Okay. Yeah. That was providential, wasn't it? It really was. Mm -hmm. It really was. And so it was, that was the beginning. And, and I look back, and, and I know for certain that if it wasn't for the testimony of my parents, that I had seen real transformation in them. I would never have considered the Bible. Mm. I, I didn't think this was the Word of God. I did not think this was it could do any change in me. I just thought, well, if it's, yeah. if it's important to my parents, I'll read it. There's a cliche that says something to the effect that uh, we may be the only Bible people ever read. And in your case, it was literally true, wasn't yes, it? You yes. saw the Bible lived out in I your parents' be. lives, even though it was a relatively recent thing in their life. You saw its power mm-hmm. immediately. Their, their love reached out to you. Unmistakably. Yeah. 
Okay, so you reached a point of faith when? Well, you know, it's hard to say at what point, what minute was it, but it was very gradual for me. I think it was was a gradual surrender, mostly because I was so hard-headed. God (laughs) knew how hardened my heart was and that it took a while for me, not God, but me to soften my heart. When you were in jail and in prison then, did you renounce the the drug use or did it still have its pull on you? It still had its pull initially, but that was the first thing that, that God convicted me of. As I was reading scripture, I knew that I had idols in my life and the most obvious was drugs. I was in for drug dealing and as I was reading scripture, I I remember reading Psalm 51 the day before before I was sentenced, and I felt like David's words were my words. I knew that David's words were yeah, my words. Cleanse me. Yes, and, and, and that I had sinned against God and man. And um, so I continued to read scriptures, and, and, and God was convicting me of all the other idols in my life, but I was still holding on to my sexuality because that was who I was. That's mm-hmm. all I had known for years. Even before I kept it a secret, I felt that this was a core part of who I was. But as I was reading scripture, I realized that my identity is not, shouldn't be found in my sexuality or in feelings, that um, God, you know, a passage that had such a great, a profound impact on me was the statement that God has where he tells us, be holy for I am holy. And I realized that he didn't say be heterosexual for I am heterosexual, and, but he said be holy for I am holy. And what that meant to me was don't focus upon your sexuality. Don't focus upon your feelings, but focus upon me. Focus upon being more like mm-hmm. Christ. And everything and focus, else will take care of itself. Fo- yes, yeah. focus upon holiness. Mm-hmm. So as God was, you know, showing me how to live and walk in obedience and and, and holiness, um, he began to reveal his plan for my my life. and. Angela, let me ask you then, um, as Christopher was gradually waking up to the gospel and and seeing your testimony and that of your husband, when did it dawn on you that there, this, this man has changed, this boy has changed? See, again, um, we go to visit him in the prison every other week. We drove about nine hours. We really did not want to challenge him so much. We just want to express our love and care. But however, I always bring Bible verses with me and write tiny little pieces of paper and put in my purse because we're not supposed to bring anything with us. So during the visit, I will share the Bible verses with him. And surprisingly, he was he did not object. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that was, was the first sign. That was the first sign. Yeah. <laughs> because we really did not want to stuff uh, scripture or Christianity down into his throat. Mm-hmm. But we just want to share what we have learned because we were in BSF. So Bible study fellowship. Bible study yeah. fellowship. So every week we have so much to share. So that's the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you don't want him drinking from a fire hose, do you? You <laughs> no. don't want to blow him away with that kind of stuff. Well, Christopher, I, I've got to bring everybody up to date. I mean, you did your time. I did. In prison. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you in prison? Initially, I said I was sentenced or I was facing 10 years to life. Yeah, that, uh, that's serious. Yes, right? yeah. Um, but then I was uh, sentenced to six years. But it was also in prison that I received my, my HIV status. And that was probably the darkest moment. And, yeah. you know, I talk about how when you're flat on your back, you have nowhere to look but up. You learned when you were in prison that you were HIV positive. Yes. 
Did it ever register with you that could happen? I, I knew that it was definitely a possibility. I was living very promiscuously, having you know many partners even in just one day. But being high makes you escape reality. Hmm. And I wasn't thinking clearly. I didn't think that this was a grave consequence. Um, I didn't even have time to soberly think about it. But sitting in prison without any drugs, with sober-minded, I realized the consequence of this HIV status. And, um, I talk, and you live with that today, don't you? I do. I still have HIV. Um, but God has been really gracious in, in keeping me healthy. I think, Great. you know, God has preordained when we will leave this earth. And Great. till that time, I'm invincible. Yeah. So you did your time, yes, and you decided to uh, go back to school. You you were not exactly a successful student at this point in your life, but <laughs> no. been expelled from dentistry school. But you decided to go back to school where? Yes, well, I didn't get my bachelor's degree before going to dental school, so I thought, well, I need to go back and get my bachelor's. So I I knew I was called to ministry, and so I called and asked my parents to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute, <laughs> and. Uh, I filled out the application and I knew I needed to get references from people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. So my references to Moody were a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate. <laughs> Boy, I bet you bowled them over with that application. <laughs> I did. Yeah, But, but God opened doors. Amazingly, you know, God opened uh, the door for Moody. Not only Moody Bible Institute, but subsequently Wheaton Graduate School. Yes. I went yeah. on to get my Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis. I received the Colson Scholarship for Ex-Offenders, mm-hmm. and now I'm working on my doctorate at Bethel Seminary. Hmm. Well, I told you when I read your book, it made me cry, and it really had that effect on me. Even though I knew bits and pieces of your story, to read your book that the two of you have written and to, to think about how God can reach down and redeem all of us. I mean, sin is sin, and we're all as guilty before God as anyone, but uh, he really reached down. Now, I want you to tell... You were known as Chris for many years. You liked to be called Chris, yes. but you decided you wanted to go by Christopher. Yes. Tell me why. Growing up, my parents, my mother called me Christopher. Uh, my father called me Christopher. Maybe my brother would sometimes call me Christopher, but I like to be called Chris. All my friends knew me as Chris from grade school, junior high, high school, college, dental school. Everyone knew me as Chris. Even in prison, people knew me as Chris. But as I was being released from prison in February 2001, I was uh, my, my sentence wasn't init- uh, over till July of 2001, but I was on home confinement. It was a landmark for me, and I felt like there needed to be some change. And um, I love the story of how when Saul turned to Paul, and yes. that was so significant, and, and how different people in the Bible— God had given them a new name, and I knew God had given me a new name. And as I knew a little bit about the meaning of my name, Christopher, from the Greek, Christ-bearer, bearer of Christ, I thought, this is exactly what I wanted. I want people, not just by looking at my name, but when they see me walking by, whether I open my mouth or not, that they will look at me and hopefully say that I bear the image of Christ. Christopher mentioned that he was accepted as a student at Moody Bible Institute. He went on to do graduate work at Wheaton College and is now pursuing a doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary. And he teaches at Moody. Christopher and his mother Angela now travel nationally and internationally to tell their amazing story, their book, Out of a Far Country, released recently by Waterbrook Press. And we've placed links to the book and to Christopher's website at firstpersoninterview.com. 
In case you missed any part of it, you'll be able to listen again to this conversation online by clicking on the Listen button at FirstPersonInterview.com. Again, that's FirstPersonInterview.com. Well, next week, you'll meet a young couple who are following God's call to move to Africa. And now with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next week for First Person. 